Hey, Three Circle Church, so glad to be with you this week as we continue our Solo Scriptura series, as we're all looking at God's Word. You know, that phrase comes out of a time called the Reformation, in which Martin Luther and other Reformers were trying to ask, what does God teach in His Word about everything we should believe, about what the Gospel is, about what Jesus taught, and how can we live that out in our lives? And so they said, you know, the Bible really is the foundation of our faith, Uh, And it really is the basis for which everything we do is based upon God's Word. And so the goal of this series really is threefold. It's first of all that we would treasure God's Word. And we looked at last week how it is such a gift and truly is uh, priceless. This week we're looking at why should we trust the Bible? Why should we make this the foundation of our life? And then finally we'll look at why do we obey the Bible? Why do we obey God's Word? And so we're looking at this week that issue of trust. How do we build our lives upon the Bible and totally and fully trust in it? So historically, this has been called the doctrine or belief of inerrancy. What does that mean? Well, that means inerrancy states for us that the Bible is completely and fully true in everything that it teaches with no mixture of error. There are no errors in the Bible. There's no um, ways in which God's ever going to have to roll out a new edition of the Scriptures. Everything is faithful and true and accurate in the Bible. And some people would say, well, what about the scientific things in the Bible? Well, actually what you have is most often you have just a difference of seeing realities based upon the practices and measurements of the time. Some people would say, well, oh, well, the weird stuff like they measure the ark in cubits. Well, uh, they didn't have feet back then. It's not how they measured things. Or maybe they just didn't like the metric system. I'm not really sure. Uh, but the reality is you just have a different approach to some sciences. But what we're finding is we have all these things that are so foundationally true. And where scientists even say today, the things we see in physics and the things we see in biology actually are reflected by what we see in the Bible. Others would say, well, it seems to be sometimes conflicting reports about events in the Bible. And they would say things like, well, what about uh, at this feeding of the 5,000 where it says 5,000 people were present? Well, actually, it says there that uh, that there were 5,000 men and not counting their families. And then so you have two different people using maybe a different uh, accounting method or counting method for the people there present. But you don't have different stories. You just have different perspectives. So we would say that our view as Three Circle Church is we have an inerrant Bible and everything that God chose to write down down in the Bible is not only inspired, that it is breathed out by God, but it is without any error because God allowed for us to write down a perfect record of what is true. So let me ask you, if somebody were to sit down with you over coffee or someone even at your workplace would ask you, well, why do you believe the Bible? Maybe even it's kind of antagonistically. Why do you believe in that old book? What would you say to them? I want you to take just a minute and and hop into that proverbial time machine with me and imagine that your your child is starting college and they sit down for the first day of lecture uh, in a classroom at the university. And as they do that, they have a professor that begins to teach his or her worldview, view of reality. And they begin to espouse some beliefs that your child raises their hand and and she says, I I don't believe that because the Bible says this. And and as she does that, that, that professor begins to ask, well, why do you believe that antiquated book? Why do you believe in the Bible? Why is that the foundation of what you believe? And maybe uh, she would say something like, well, I was raised to believe the Bible. Maybe that's what you would say if someone was to ask you, why do you believe the Bible? 
And then that professor begins to, to lean in and kind of kind of ask her even more questions, more in-depth questions like, well, um, if you believe the Bible, what about somebody who grew up with a different worldview? And maybe they be, read the Bhagavad Gita or maybe they, they read the Pearl of Great Price or maybe they uh, have some other philosophy or way of seeing life. What makes your the way you were raised better than the way they were raised. And you see how that can become an, an infinite regress of, well, who's right? And, uh, and what should we really believe? And what makes uh, the way that I was raised better than the way that someone else was raised? Or maybe you would say, well, maybe the answer is in our experience. Maybe if someone asked you why you believe the Bible, you'd simply say, well, it changed my life. Uh, it changed my life. I'm a different person because of what I believe about the Bible, what I believe about the God that's taught in the Bible. Well, this professor maybe leans in to your daughter and then and questions her even more to say, well, why is your experience the sole determining factor? And maybe we could even take a story as an illustration. I think about a young man uh, that grew up in the Midwest whose mom suffered from mental illness and whose dad was murdered at a young age. He then had to move into his uh, oldest sister's home in Boston Massachusetts, and very quickly he surrounded himself with some friends. Uh, they were quite unsavory guys, and he began to get in some trouble. And before long, he found himself incarcerated for a number of years. And before long, he there were some guys in the prison that began to share with him the need uh, for him to follow this Messiah. And at first, he refused to believe it, and he said, "I just, I will not, I cannot." I cannot follow this Messiah. And eventually he had an experience in his room one night in his jail cell. And that experience set him on a different path. He became a model prisoner and he got out of prison and his name uh, is on street signs. And he himself was responsible for establishing hundreds of houses of worship all across this country. He had an experience that changed his life, but his name is Malcolm X. And his prophet was Elijah Muhammad, and he became a member of the nation of Islam. Not long before he died, he actually came to the belief uh, that Elijah Muhammad was not who he claimed to be, uh, and he became an Orthodox Muslim not long before the nation of Islam uh, assassinated him. But he had a belief based upon experience, but he was wrong. What's my point? I'm not saying that any of those things are bad or evil or that they're not part of the equation, but I am simply saying that how do we believe down at the core of who we are that the Bible is verifiably, actually, totally true? How do we believe that? What is the foundation that we can place our lives upon that we believe that to the very core of who we are? Well, I think that we do that by looking at the Bible and seeing what it is to us and its witness to us. And so I'm just going to give some reasons to you why I believe the Bible. And let's lean in and look at them together because I believe they're also the same reasons why you can believe the Bible and trust the Bible as well. And you can build your life upon it, that you trust in it that much. So here's a great quote that I think explains to us why we can have an unshakable trust in the Word of God. It's from a guy named Vody Bauckham, a theologian, uh, who I think explains it very well. He says, We can believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Now, I know that's a mouthful. 
but we're going to unpack a little bit of the great things that we see here that give us uh, a sure and firm faith in why we can trust and rely on the fact the Bible is totally accurate and true and worthy of that uh, uh, assured trust that we have of it for salvation and for everything that we should believe about life. The first thing is the cohesiveness of the Bible. We can trust the Bible because of its cohesiveness. When you think about the Bible, it is so unique in the way of how it is composed and how it's cohesive. Think about the fact that God used 40 different authors over a 600 or a 1600 year period uh, on three different continents and three different languages to compose this beautiful book. He used uh, uh, these guys that were shepherds or fishermen or statesmen uh, or prophets or kings from all these different realms and backgrounds and vocations, yet they composed this unified account of the sovereign interaction of God pointing towards one Savior. The Bible is a beautifully diverse book, but yet it's a beautifully unified book. And it works together and is so so cohesive in the way that it holds together and connects to one another. When you look at the Bible, you see this way that it works together. You look at the New Testament, you see how it's so connected to the Old Testament. In fact, 34 to 39 books are quoted in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus himself quoted 24 of the 39 Old Testament books. You read in books like Hebrews where it shows us that so much of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and the system of worship and God's sovereignty over human history reveals uh, how it is a God at work, supernatural in human history, revealing himself, how it cohesively works together. Old and New Testaments form the simultaneous singular revelation of God. The Bible is cohesive. It's connected and its interconnectivity is undeniable as you read it from Genesis to Revelation. But also we can believe the Bible because of its historical verification. It's historical verification. The Bible says that it has witnesses in the lifetime of eyewitnesses bearing witness to accounts. It's, it's a, uh, an exact document revealing real historical, actual events. It's not just some, some tales of things that happened or moral fables. These are real events that happened in history that can be documented and be Verified. I love how John the Apostle explains this to us uh, so clearly and so articulately in 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. He says, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning. So he says, Jesus is God there. He's the one who existed from the beginning. Then he goes on to say, Whom we have heard and seen, we saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and, pro and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was the one, one with the Father and he was revealed to us. Do you think there's any other sense that he could say there that they had an interaction with Jesus? He's saying, look, we stood in his presence. We heard his voice. We walked with him. I'm telling you, God was alive with us and walking with us a real, actual person uh, who Jesus was. We saw him. We did life with him. Uh, it, he, he is the Savior of the world. I want you to know we lived and saw him do everything he did, including get up out of the grave. And so the Bible is a historically verifiable event. And you may have some people that they want to push back and say, look, I'm, I'm a science, I'm a science person, right? I like to see the scientific method work out and I'm not going to believe anything that can't be proved with science. 
And so I just want to say to you uh, that you can reply back to them. That's fine. God is not anti-science, but the, the fact that we can believe the Bible is not based upon the scientific method. You don't drag the things that happen in the Bible into a, into a science classroom or into a laboratory uh, because they're historical events. And so how we verify the Bible is true in the historical events that it reports, it's the same thing we would verify something in a courtroom. We would take and bring eyewitnesses and evidence to prove the events that transpired. And so what we have is we have these eyewitnesses accounts that are bringing to bear what happened and the evidence of what happened. So we can say, here's a person who was there who could be disqualified by another eyewitness that says, these are the events that happened that cannot be refuted. So we had not only the witness of the Bible, historically of eyewitnesses, but we also have reliable evidence all throughout history. In fact, do you know that there's been over 25,000 archaeological digs in relationship to something uh, that is uh, in the Bible. And not one of those digs has ever disproved anything that's in the Bible. In fact, you know what they have done? They've uncovered things the Bible already reported. We have a historically accurate book that eyewitnesses and evidence show us time and time again. Over 25,000 archaeological digs have demonstrated that we have a real, actual documentation of events that God supernaturally acted in human history uh, and it's documented in the Bible. So we believe the Bible because of its cohesiveness, because of its historical verification, but also because of its Christ-centeredness. I believe the Bible because it ties everything together in the person and work of Jesus. I love how, um, how in the Bible we get this picture of why we should trust the Scripture in John chapter 5, verse 39, where Jesus says, here's what the Bible's all about. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. So Jesus looked at a room full on this occasion of people that were very educated. They had more degrees than the thermometer on the wall, but they had missed the fact that the Bible and the revelation of God was not pointing towards simply uh, things about God. They were pointing to who God was in the person of Jesus and his salvation of the world. And so uh, Jesus says the Bible's supposed to point us to him. The Bible is uh, for us to have this, this, this signpost that points towards the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the center point of all of history and the salvation of humanity. And so the Bible over and over again, both in the prophecies of the Old Testament, there are hundreds of them that Jesus fulfilled that were outside of his control, many of them, to even be able to manipulate if he chose to that over and over again, we see that God is indicating for us there was a Savior coming, Jesus is Him, and He died in our place and was raised again. The Bible points towards Jesus. He's the central hero of the Bible, and because I believe in Jesus is part of why I choose to believe the Bible. So the fifth and final reason why I believe the Bible, and I believe you can too, and why we should trust in it, is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus, the historical, actual, physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. A one-time occurrence that changes everything about our lives and eternity. So Paul reports to us about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. And he says this, After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. That's speaking about Jesus after he's been resurrected as he's appearing to people. And then he says this, Most of whom are still alive though some have died. In other words, Paul says, not only are there those apostles that saw Jesus uh, in the upper room, not only were there um, the 12 that saw him and those others that saw him, but he says there's over 500 witnesses that saw Jesus in that time after the resurrection 
they can verify that Jesus indeed was raised from the dead. They saw him walking around. They saw him alive. And so if we can verify the resurrection is true, that changes everything. That changes everything about whether we can believe the Bible or not. Even if we take all the other things away, the fact that the resurrection is true changes everything about us. And it could have easily been disproved it was not accurate. All the religious leaders had to do in the day if the resurrection was not a reality was produce the body of Jesus. All they had to do was produce that body and all uh, of the ruckus about Jesus being risen would have quickly faded away. Not only that, we see the apostles, as history documents for us, gave their lives for this fact of a resurrected Savior. If they did not believe it, they would not have died for it. We have Paul, who was Saul, who was the antagonist of the early church, beating people, imprisoning people, holding coats while people were put to death, while Stephen was stoned to death as a martyr, and yet he becomes the greatest missionary uh, in the in the known world of that time, maybe in history, because this resurrected Jesus appeared to him. Church, we have a valid, historically accurate, timeless treasure in the Bible that we can trust. We can build our lives upon it. You know, it makes me think about, you know, how probably often if we were to, uh, if we were to take a, uh, a poll of everybody watching this broadcast right now, most all of you would say at some point, if not regularly, you fly on commercial air travel. You hop on an airplane and with little thought, you fly for maybe hours halfway across the country or halfway around the world. And we really don't even think about it. It's just kind of like something we do. It's a modern day process of getting to point A and point B for going on vacation or going on a business trip. It's not even something we really even think about. And you know why? Because there is a tedious process that goes into planning how those flights are going to be safe. There is a relentless checklist of every single thing that needs to be done in order to make sure and ensure that that flight gets from point A to point B. Church, we can have that same confidence as we would to buckle a seatbelt on a plane and fly halfway around the world and have confidence we're going to get there. How much more confidence can we have in the Word of God? We have a a document that has been fact-checked again and again and again. And what you have is, is people historically dig in to what the Bible teaches. They don't end up disbelieving, they end up believing. We could talk about people like C.S. Lewis, who was one of the greatest philosophers of the past generation, uh, who tried to disprove Christianity and believed. Or Josh McDowell, which uh, is has written a lot about his journey to faith. Uh, or you have Lee Strobel and his Case for Christ series. You could go over and over again all throughout history of these people that tried to disprove the validity of the Bible that ended up having confidence in the validity of the Bible. It's accurate and worthy of our trust. But my final reason why, and this is the most important one for me, is that Jesus believed the Bible. We follow Jesus and Jesus believes the Bible. And as we've already said in the series, we have a king and a king has a book. And that's the Bible. And it just boils down to this church. If we can't believe Jesus about the Bible, then really we can't believe him about anything. If we can't believe that when he believed the Bible and he taught the Bible, that he trusted in it, then why would we trust anything else about what he says? And so Jesus believed the Bible. He gave us the Bible and he preached the Bible. Let me give you an example of how Jesus believed the Bible. Matthew 12, 40 says this. This is Jesus teaching. We're just pulling a little bit out of his teaching here. He says, For as Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So this is an easy one that a lot of people that are skeptical would say, surely 
this guy didn't get swallowed by a real, actual fish. Surely there's metaphor at play here. No, Jesus says this is an actual historical event to where God called a whale Uber. The whale Uber picked up the man. The man went under, right? It was a real event. Jesus didn't say this has great moral implications. He taught it as a real, actual event. Jesus believed the Bible. He said things like not one single letter of the alphabet, not one single stroke of a pen of the Bible is going to pass away. He said it's all accurate, it's all true, it's all reliable, it's all valid. Jesus, frankly, believed the Bible and we should too. I'd like to take just the next few minutes to just maybe help me and help you to address questions people have about why we believe the Bible or objections to why maybe they don't believe the Bible. And let me just say that the goal of this part uh, of the message is not to give you a weapon to attack someone who, uh, who doesn't believe or who is skeptical, but rather to give you uh, some tools for a conversation about why you do. We never want our posture to be as the church, as the people that feel like we need to defend the Bible. I love what C.H. Spurgeon said. He, sa- he said, look, we don't have to defend the Bible because the Bible is a lion. Look, you don't have to defend a lion. You just let it loose. So all I'm trying to do is give you tools for you to let the Bible loose let people investigate and dig for themselves and let God work in their lives. So let me just give you an unpacking of how you can respond to some of these objections people would have. So here's a few common objections raised about the Bible. Here's one. Translations over the years have diluted what was originally recorded in the Bible. So this is kind of a popular skeptical approach. It's very inaccurate, but it's out there. And so the argument is something like this. I don't know if, if ever in school you had this game you played called telephone, right? And so the first person in the line, you went and you whispered a message to them and then they whispered to the next person and then so on and so on, you get to the end of the line and then the person in the line says uh, what the message was and then everybody laughs because it's nowhere close to what the original message was. And that's the idea is that that's kind of what we've got with modern day translations uh, is really we've just got this message that's so diluted that it's not even really comparable anymore to what the original message is. And so let me just say to you that that is not an accurate representation of how the Bible is uh, is translated at all. In fact, we actually have documents uh, from as early as 100 years uh, after the, the end of the writing of the New Testament, which is around AD 100 uh, of the Bible. And so we can go back to documents that are just 100 years within their writing uh, when they were written that give us the same New Testament that we have today. Uh, and if you think that that sounds like a long time, then let me just tell you the closest comparison. Uh, Homer's The Iliad and the Odyssey, there's around 600 copies, which we have thousands and thousands of copies of the New Testament, and it's a thousand years after its writing. And so we have uh, close to 100 years and thousands of copies versus just a few hundred copies of any other historical document. And, and so every person who's translating the Word of God goes back to those original languages they were written in, the Old Testament Hebrew and Aramaic, and the New Testament and Greek, and they translate from those languages, from those early documents, to uh, an English translation of the Bible. And some people say, well, what about the variations that you have uh, in those documents? What about the fact that sometimes you have a little bit of a different thing written here and a different thing written there? So church, I don't want to get into an extremely complicated discussion of this. There's lots of stuff that's been written. In fact, we sent you an email this week about somebody unpacking how we got the canon of the Bible and and some of those different things. Uh, But let me just say that there are a few variations in the Bible, but quite frankly, all but about 2% of them are really just spelling variations or a different way of phrasing a sentence. If I say uh, Jack walked to the store or to the store Jack walked, I've not said something different. 
I've just said the same thing a different way. And almost all of the variants or differences in expression are either spelling or something to that indication in the Bible. We don't have different messages in the Bible. Rather, we have a singular message in which it tells us what God has said to us. And it was before anybody had a way to mass produce anything. So I don't know about you, but if I'm sitting in a room and I'm an ancient scribe or someone writing out the New Testament and somebody's standing at the front of the class and they're giving what to write down, uh, every now and then I may make a mistake. And so those mistakes, like I said, were often like a spelling difference and how they spell a name. And there's nothing written in any of these things that changes what we believe. There's nothing that says anything different than Jesus is the Savior of the world who died in our place and was raised from the dead. Quite frankly, until 1500, there was no way to mass produce documents. And so spelling errors or uh, miswriting things we're going to happen. We're human, right? And I'm sure nobody would want to get my copy because uh, I, if I don't have spell check on my computer, I'd be in really bad shape. We have an accurate recording of God's Word, and it's not been diluted through the years. Uh, any translation goes back to translate from the original languages of the Bible. Second objection. Why are some books not included in the Bible, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Apocrypha? And so what we need to do is we need to be able to dig into answering some of those questions and then answering them from what the canon is. Uh, and so the books we have in the New Testament, the Old Testament, what's called the canon. And so that means the books that were chosen uh, in the Old Testament, New Testament. So that word canon means measuring rod. It means how do we come to these books being included in the Bible? Well, here's the three marks of how like a book was included in the New Testament that they required in that first century church. Three ways the New Testament book was measured as to whether it was included in the canon. The first is conformity. We'll unpack these here in a second. The second is apostolicity. That's a, that's a fun word, apostolicity. The third is uh, Catholicity. So let me unpack those for us. The first is conformity. That is, does this book conform to the orthodox beliefs of what it means to be a follower of God, a follower of Jesus? Does this conform to what we see written in all the other books and in the Old Testament, which the Bible of their day when they're composing the New Testament? Does this conform to what is already, we believe, is orthodox belief about God? The second is apostolicity, if I can get that word out. And simply that means the book of the New Testament had to be written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. So even like if you have Luke composing the gospel of Luke, uh, he was a physician to an apostle. Uh, and so he was in close working proximity to an apostle and several associates. And so he was able to verify. And as Luke and Acts tells us, he verified through working with apostles and through eyewitnesses to compose his account. Then finally, there's Catholicity. And simply that means that it was already being used across the churches uh, by and large in the early church. And so they were already embracing this as the Bible given to us as the word of God. So some people were like, well, why do we include those 27 books in the New Testament and not some of these other books that are written like the Gospel of Thomas? And let me just say to you that we believe, and a lot of historical evidence bears out, that we had the end of the Bible written, all 27 books, by 90 AD. A lot of these books, all of these books, in fact, uh, were written much later than that, and they're what's called a pseudepigraphal book. Say that three times fast, right? What that means is, that means that it's somebody writing under a name claiming to be someone they were not. And so not only did they not exist in the time the 27 books were already included in the New Testament, so they wouldn't have been uh, included because they didn't exist, but often, like even the Gospel of Thomas, for example, is written by someone claiming to be Thomas who's really not. He's living hundreds of years after Thomas has already died. 
And so these books were written much later than the New Testament had already been written and written by people claiming to be someone they were not. Uh, and so what we have is books that never would have even been considered because the canon of the New Testament was already closed. Those 27 books had already been chosen by those measuring points that we just looked at. But then also people would say, well, why is the Apocrypha not included? Why is that addition not in the Bible? And that is very similar, but in a different pattern or a different time in history. Because the 39 books of the Old Testament by Jesus' day had already been sealed up, that canon. Jesus would have reached into, uh, like for instance, Luke 4, 18. He reached into uh, that box there where they held the scrolls of the Old Testament prophets. None of the Apocrypha was in there. They already had those 39 books. Those books were added later after the Reformation by leaders in the Catholic Church as a movement uh, to deal with some doctrines they wanted to, to put into the canon, but they were never included in Jesus and the disciples that was never part of their Bible. Now, again, I'm not telling you these things uh, so that they can be weapons for you to fight people you disagree with, but just facts about how we have the books of the, of the Bible, the 39 Old Testament books and the 27 New Testament books. What we have is God revealing books to us that we should trust in uh, and us affirming that those are the books that we should trust in. Uh, so the canon is not something the church created. The canon is simply something the church acknowledged as God's gift of revelation to us. I love that theologian J.I. Packer explained this to us of how the canon or the books included in the Bible are God's gift to us. He said the church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us the force of gravity by His work of creation. And similarly, God gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring individuals to make it up. We can believe in the books in the Old Testament and the New Testament because they reflect to us God's revelation to us all throughout history. And we literally have thousands of copies, both in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the manuscripts of the New Testament to verify we have an accurate reflection of exactly what they wrote down in those days and we can trust in it today. The final objection that some people may raise is, well, men wrote the Bible and men make mistakes. Men wrote the Bible and simply human beings make mistakes. We're fallible. So we say things like to err is human, right? Uh, we all make mistakes. We all sin. We all have shortcomings. And although it is true that as human beings, there is no perfect human being. In fact, that's the very foundation of what we believe of the gospel, right? That we're not perfect, but Jesus is in our place. But just because we can make a mistake doesn't mean we're bound to or that we have to. Many of you probably just finished watching the Olympics. And as you watch some of those events, people got perfect scores in events, right? And so although we can err as humans and we will err, it doesn't mean that just because we go to, out to do something or compose something that we will err. And so here's what we believe as the church. And that is that God is truthful and trustworthy and infallible. And so he used fallible people to write an infallible book. See, that's what we believe, church. We don't believe that the people that wrote the Bible were perfect. We just believe that a perfect God inspired them and watched over the process of them recording it so that we have an infallible book. That's what we believe. We don't believe that there was anything supernatural about the people outside of what they did there. In fact, the Bible's honest about that, is it not? We don't have any New Testament writers, whether it be kings or prophets or, or apostles, that don't write self-incriminating things, do we not? We have real people following a transforming God who supernaturally inspires and reveals a Bible that we can trust. That's what we have. And so I love how Genesis 23, 19 explains this to us about how God can do something that human beings simply can never do because He is infallible and consistent and trustworthy in every stretch of the imagination and every sense of those words. 
God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. He has never spoken and failed to act. He has never promised and not carried through. The Bible is God's reflection of everything He wants for us to know for now and for eternity. And He has revealed it to us in a way that is so cohesive in the way the Old Testament and the New Testament form together. He's revealed it to us in such a way that it can be historically verified, and it has, church, time and time again. It has been verified as accurate and reliable, and we can trust in it. And finally, it's just the fact that Jesus believed it. And if Jesus is our king and he's truly the only one who ever has lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death in our place and gotten up out of the grave and he believed and taught the Bible, then quite frankly, church, we should too. And not only should we, but as we treasure it and as we trust in it, God will transform us to bring his kingdom and experience his grace and live out life as he intended as creator and designer and the one who wrote his word so it could be a path to life uh, and a pathway to blessing as we build our lives upon it and live based upon what it says. It will be a pathway to God's promises and faithfulness for us. And church, I pray this today, it has solidified your faith in the inerrant, infallible, perfect word of God that is trustworthy and viable for every part of your life as you watch this today. And if you trust in it, God can use it to change you. I trust he does, church. Love you.